It's a, just try to keep it formal. And, and normally, this is, I don't even set the questions, but with you, uh, what I wanted to do is just talk about you know the background of this whole thing, more from the perspective of people who don't know a lot about it. You know, I find a lot of us, we all talk together in such a way, it's, it's almost like a jargon. It's all about you know, subjects that are well-known and well-traversed, and that's interesting to me and interesting to you, but maybe not to, you know, to people that have no idea about it. And I'm, yeah, I'd like to reach those guys tonight a little bit. Um, now, I remember that I sent my questions over to you. So, you know, just to, just to fill you out from the beginning and, and get that background. And those who know would appear to be before, but what started the Nessie craze? Was there a trigger moment or why did you get interested well, what started in SE3? I think there's probably multiple factors here. It's probably hard to pick out one because if you take it away, the rest may not have happened. But we certainly go back to the 1930s. Uh, I think it's important to state what the backdrop was to Britain at that time, where we in the Great Depression in 1933. Uh, things were pretty low in Britain. Uh, there was trouble over the continent with Hitler rearming. And people were high levels of unemployment and so on. People feeling a bit down. And I think in some regards, people were looking for a feel-good story. Uh, The media, I'm talking now about the media. Yeah. The newspapers newspapers of the time picked up on the story. It all began locally. And there's concentric ripples here. Uh, Back in 1933, uh, the government had set people to work, basically building bridges, roads, dams and so on, hydroelectric schemes. So there was a lot of activity going up to the highlands to put people back to work during this uh, economic crash. It's not like today, but it's probably worse actually. And Uh uh, because there's less welfare, for example. So they were building a road up the north shore of Loch Ness. Now this is purely economical to connect towns like Inverness to central Scotland, Glasgow, Edinburgh, so on. So as an economic project, uh, they began to cut down trees along the side of Loch Ness. They have to point out there was already a road there. Uh-huh. Uh, there'd always been a road uh, on the north side of Loch Ness. This was an improvement. They were clearing it, they're widening it, improving the surface and so on. And this uh, opened up the loch the tourism and such like and you know at that time you probably had the best views of the lot ever if you look at postcards all the time you hardly see a tree in sight <laughs> they just wow. cut them all down so uh, this is the north shore the, the south shore is a bit different it is more underdeveloped so I guess this backdrop uh, which encouraged some tourism to start up people had easier, easier access to the highlands uh, we have this uh, a newspaper story that appeared in the local newspaper called Inverness Courier, uh, and the local one of the local correspondents uh, had a story published on the second of May, 1933, called "Strange Spectacle on Loch Ness," uh-huh. and that story that that uh, write-up began with Loch Ness has for generations been credited with being the home of a fearsome-looking monster, and it 
asked the question, has this legendary Walter, Kel Walter Kelpie been seen? And it relates not the story of a tourist, but of a lady who was at that time anonymous. It just talks about a well-known businessman and his wife uh, travelling along the North Shore towards Abriachan, which is a, one of the uh -huh. northernmost northern villages. And they saw what they thought was a disturbance of the water, as if it was ducks fighting. But then they said they noticed uh, this creature, like almost like a whale, disporting itself, rolling and plunging for about a minute. They said the body resembled that of a whale. They weren't saying it was the size of a whale, but rather the, the skin and the appearance. Uh -huh. It water cascading, and it disappeared in a boiling mass of foam. Uh, so this, this story got uh, published. I have to point out there have been this, some stories published before in 1930 in a couple of Highland newspapers. But that uh, didn't seem to take off. Now, as it turned out, the, the witnesses were Aldi Mackay and her husband. So it turns out that Aldi Mackay saw most of it because her husband was driving. Now, Aldi Mackay was there. Uh, very well versed with the loch. She was a, a salmon fisher, angler. She she knew the moods and uh, appearances of loch. Uh, so she said it's the monster. Cause she said that because it always been a local tradition uh -huh. of a monster in the loch. And uh, this story came out, uh, and uh, it was fleshed out some later in the year by a researcher called uh, Rupert T. Gould, who wrote ah. the first book on the Loch Ness Monster. He went up and interviewed her, and the story pretty much tallied with the original uh, press, press uh, story. So that, uh, that kicked things off, but at that point it was still very much a kind of local Highland story. But I say that because the story never got beyond the Minescudia. It wasn't picked up by uh, the leading Scottish newspapers like the Herald or the Scotsman. So that started it, and following on from that, we have a series of reports of similar stream sites in the loch being reported by the Curia, and as it then it grew, it grew to other Highland newspapers. So it, it remained in that domain. About uh, the summer, late in the summer, Aldi Mackay's sighting was probably around late March, April, and it got finally published in uh, May, as I said. But what really kicked things off uh, was in July 1933, uh, a man and his wife called George Spicer. Uh huh. Now, George, George Spicer was just a, a tourist. He, was, he lived in London, he, was a, he ran a Savile Row tailor outlet, he was a director of that company. And they were just motoring down the other side of the, the loch, on the south side, between the villages of Doors and Foyers. So they talked about in the area of another village called Whitefield. And he said, uh, he actually, once again, Inverness Courier picked up this story, because he basically wrote, he wrote a letter to them, and the editor uh, felt obliged to prepare people for the shock of this story by saying, well, perhaps he just saw a line of waters or something like that. 
yeah. so they tried to balance they, they tried to balance uh, what they felt was uh, sensational sensational was my story because basically he said he saw this huge creature lumbering across them in front of the road his original letter basically said I returned from motor and holiday and he would form them on the 22nd of July he saw the nearest approach to a dragon or a prehistoric monster he had ever seen in his life Crossing uh-huh. the road, but I said it had a long neck which moved up and down like a snake railway, you know, like an undulating body, big, high back. You couldn't see any feet or flippers or webs because of the the brow of the hill, and he wasn't sure about any tail. It moved so rapidly, very ugly. He said at the time he put his legs at about six to eight feet long. So where. Uh, Later, Rupert Gould once again interviewed them as well as Rupert, and when Gould told them that the length of the road, the width of the road was 14 feet, he said, oh well, I've, I've underestimated the uh-huh. size of the creature. Okay. And he put, it, he put it above 20 feet, 25 feet long. Now, how he came back to calculation, I'm not sure, but did he include an imaginary tail or something like that? Uh-huh. So uh, that, that story was published once again uh, beginning of August 1963 this time time the story was picked up by national newspapers so the Scotsman uh, and others, London newspapers began to pick it up, the Times and that what happened was uh, after that the Scotsman I think took took the lead in this story the Inverness Courier continued to report on sightings uh, but the Scotsman sent up a correspondent uh, to investigate the matter and he went up to Fort Augustus and other areas and began to interview, take notes, draw in sketches of what was going on up here. And they ran a, seed, uh, a, a long article around September 1953, so we weeks later. Uh, it's which includes uh, sightings which have become gone into the mainstream uh, of the eyewitness database. A lot of them were describing humps, some long necks and humps at the same time. Uh, Alex Campbell, who was actually the correspondent who reported the first Aldi Mackay story, uh, he recounted his story to the correspondent anonymously. Uh, we think that because he he was a water bearer and he worked mm-hmm. for the he worked for the the fishery or the Lovett estate. We're not not clear who he exactly worked for. Uh, so he was a bit careful not to get too uh, incredulous with his stories. He reported as anonymous, so did others, and that was picked up. It's like a cascade effect now. Inverness uh-huh. Courier, Sportsman, Herald went down to London Times, uh, Daily Sketch. Daily Mail. So and then it began to just ripple out uh, to uh, beyond. But then, then other sightings came in. But then by this time, uh, Bernard Marmaduke Weatherall, a big game hunter, had been, ah, yes. had been commissioned by the Daily Mail. So the Daily Mail now got in, in the act. This is around December. We now we've moved uh-huh. a couple of months on to December. Uh, they said Daily Mail set up Marmaduke Weatherall to write a series to report back a series of articles uh, on his, shall we call it, an expedition. Mm. Uh, and as uh, that, that, that became a bit of a, 
Uh, they have the image of the long neck, the long graceful neck and the head looking towards the left of the picture. Uh, this was uh, allegedly taken by a Harley Street surgeon called Robert Kenneth Wilson. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Daily Mail picked that one up. Uh, he they bought his picture and that basically led to droves of people sweeping up to the lock in the summer of 1934. And by now, by time, by time 1934 has passed, we've had hundreds of sightings. Uh, we, well, not all of them could have been a monster. Uh, but that is, 1934 was the year in which the most sightings of eyewitness reports were recorded. No, no one comes near 1934. Uh, and then things just crashed, the press lost interest, uh, there are still stories coming through the Korea and all the mainstream media, but it had its day. There'd be a media storm. Weatherall and the Daily Mail concluded it was just a, a, a giant steel and made up. I think they made up a sighting that saw a steel. Uh, and as the Second World War approached, and people had more important things to consider, yeah. the monster faded from view. But the craze in May 1933 to about July 1934. Peak Nessie, in some sense. That's how the craze started. Well, it, yeah, I think it's, yeah, especially to get your learning perspective on it, for me, it's, it's really, really fascinating. And um, You mentioned the surgeon, Wilson, uh, the Harley Street surgeon. I worked in Harley Street <coughs> for seven years. Oh, yeah. And um, it always fascinated me that a person that worked in that environment would come out with such a sighting, would, would be so bold as to you know, publish such a sighting because the damage to reputation could be really significant, even today. And um, I wondered, you know, could, is it one of these cases that you have with witnesses sometimes where they cannot unsee what they've seen? And so, regardless of the consequence they speak, um, with this particular one, I know there's a lot of controversy surrounding it. Yeah, rumors of a cover-up for an affair. Well, I mean, to me, that seems the worst possible excuse you could think of. Um, and you know, this light revenge against the Daily Mail on behalf of Marmaduke Withrall that some people espouse as well. I mean, what's what's your take on the surgeon's photo sighting? Of course, the the what's called the deathbed confession, which isn't a deathbed confession as well, about the, the hoax. Um, go into that a little bit, because I think you, I read one of your blogs about that. I was very, very interested in it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the soldier's photograph was the same iconic image for about 60 years thereafter. Uh, every major monster hunter uses it in their book, and they try yeah. to see hidden features in it, and there are some people claim a few whiskers on the head, Okay. the, mud, the muzzle and so on, but uh, it, it's most likely a hoax. Uh, back in 1975, uh, Adrian Shine, who's one of the experts on this, put in contact, found they given a newspaper clip in this crazy hoax, and that they should talk to the step, uh, the son of Marmaduke uh, Weatherall. It was mm-hmm. Ian Weatherall. Uh, I think he died by then. Uh, but by the time they got on to investigating this later in the 1980s, 
uh, he had died. But uh, the investigators, Alistair Boyd and David Martin, who exposed this, uh, got in touch with the stepson of Marmaduke Wetherill, called Christian Spurland, who lived in Twickenham mm-hmm. in London. Uh-huh. Uh, by now he's... Uh, yeah. Uh, by then, when they found him and he, he was willing to speak to them, uh, he was in his early 90s, I think. So he said it was all a hoax that they had been there. Uh, a revenge act for the Daily Mail sacking Bernard Witherell. Mm. So, uh, and Witherell set up a chain of command, whatever, front man, middle man, spawning with a middle man who fashioned the, the model out of plastic wood and put it on a wooden base and stabilised it with lead weights, tested it on his pond in the back garden. Uh, they took it up north, took some pictures, uh, which were developed in Inverness. Some people claim that the negatives were taken back to Conspiracy HQ and were re-photographed. Mm-hmm. Uh, either way, there were only two photographs came out, the famous one and the one which Wilson, who was a front man, wanted some respectful personality to bring forward the picture, to give it uh-huh. credence. And uh, Wilson was a bit of a practical joker. He was always up for a laugh. Uh, so he he was a front man. Uh, mm. Anonymous. He was initially anonymous, but his, his name came out eventually. The Daily Mail, that's exactly what Mayor wanted, took the picture. Uh, ah. the, only, the, only mis- the only mystery is why didn't Marmaduke Wetherill follow through and, and confess the hoax and scandalise the Daily Mail? Uh-huh. So that never happened. That, that's a, that's a, an inkblot on the theory. Uh, but Spurlin, uh-huh. we have two confessions. We have Christian Spurlin saying it's all a hoax and I, I made the model. And we have the newspaper clipping from uh, 1975 in which Ian Wetherill, Marmaduke's son, confesses. Uh-huh. And, okay. and we also have the, to add to the, give weight to that theory we uh, Ian Wetherill's son, who's still alive today, uh, showed Martin, uh, Martin and Boyd the the ashtray which had been used to produce the hippopotamus uh-huh. fake tracks. <laughs> they just proved that Wetherill was a, a faker, and it wasn't beyond the bounds of imagination yeah. to see him producing that a fake photograph. So well, I mean, it's a fake. I mean, some people tough questions as a whole I know and with all these things well I mean yeah we've all been on the forums and um, largely it becomes a subject of of belief and uh, I myself have been in that position in the past where you know your belief or desire for the reality of uh, evidence or a subject becomes overwhelming to the point where it's hard to accept clear facts um, that that um, contradicted, and um, I think that's a, something that's come to interest me more in cryptozoology in recent years. Actually, the um, uh, the pseudo religious aspect of people's interest in it, yeah, um, which is, is very strange. And how talking about that kind of thing, how did you first get interested in Nessie? Was it was it these particular uh, finding these particular clips when you're or was it looking at things like the In Search Of series in the 1970s with Leonard Nimoy and others? Uh, how did you get involved? Yeah, well, it certainly 
Mayantri D4, D1, Whitney, and did that, did this. Visit That'd be this amazing. Person. Awesome. And, uh, but by the time I got to university and got a career, I'm a software engineer, I, uh-huh. I, I, I was still interested. I watched newspapers, but, but they, we didn't have the internet by then, so I was, the only way I could keep up was reading newspapers. Mm, uh, so by, by then, you know, Married, had kids, and life overtook me. And it wasn't until ten years ago, a turn of the century, turn of the millennium, late night, around the year two thousand, and the kids were still young men, but uh, still I'd, I had enough time to. I just got diverted. I looked at all the Nessie forums on the bulletin boards or the news groups back then. Uh-huh. Lastly sceptical, lastly scared. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I need to count the balance this. Yeah. So I started, yeah. I started arguing on blogs like uh, the, the, the Nessie.com website uh, used to have a forum called Nessie's Dashboard. It's gone now. So uh, 20 years ago I was on that as a young man uh, arguing the case for Nessie, as were others, but others were becoming dubious. Uh, but then I thought, there's really not enough of an internet presence for monsters, so I started my blog uh, ten, years, 10 years ago this month, actually. Wow. wow. Um, and it's, I mean, just for anybody listening at the uh, Loch Ness Mystery Blog, it's extensive. I've been through it back and forth, and it's, it's a huge work, Roland, a huge body of work. Yeah, 700 articles. Mm. Some, are, some are just one liners, but uh, I've gone through various phases. I've tried to dig up uh, the past and find new witnesses, talk to old witnesses, find photographs that have never been published before, mm. uh, and obviously follow new sightings and and at the same time take on scepticism because a lot of the monster hunters of the past are now the skeptics of the present. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny how that happens? <laughs> few of them are quite evangelical about yeah. Yeah. dismissing them monster. I mean, you, you think this would stop believing and, and just walk away and go and do something useful, right? Uh, I think that was the yeah. question I thought. walking or something. An old, the, an old foe of yours we won't mention, I think that's the question I posed yeah. to him after a big line of um, communication. He said, well, you know, you've been there for six decades. You concluded this maybe three, four decades ago. What are you still doing there? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, the answer was quite, quite uh, common sense. It's a nice area to live in, and I, I work around the lock. So, well, that's fair enough. But what are you, why are you still interested if you haven't been interested in, in seeing it as a, a reality for, for this length of time? What do you think? Where do you think evangelical skepticism comes from? I mean, for a long term. Investment. We can be skeptical, but to be evangelical about it, surely we must have it, that itself centers around a belief that we want to spread. We want to tell people you're wrong about this, or actually you're all mistaken, and I need to spread the word. Where, where do you think that comes from? I think first of all, it's a part of a wider movement of skepticism. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, we're living in the need of skepticism. Skepticism, where, where anything. 
came with it hard, any, hard evidence of poo-poos or even attacks mm-hmm. uh, from religion, big fruits, flying sauces. So people like Loch Ness Skeptics have just plugged themselves into this network. Okay. So they're part of a larger community which brings some kudos and respect, I guess. But the other aspect, I think, is uh, it's a bit like the reformed alcoholic to me. Ex-smokers. Ex-smokers. So when somebody gives up smoking, not everyone, or they give up alcoholism, then they, 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 they become evangelical. They, they tell people you must never touch a drop of the stuff. You know what yeah. like that. They just yeah. go completely to the other side. <laughs> so uh, they don't just say, oh, I'm so glad I've given up. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. Now I found out the real truth about this. I've got to make sure that none of the rest of you fall into the same trap. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, I. Some people I, actually think. Well, that's kind of strange to me, really, because it, in its very basic elements, what are we talking about? The search for hidden animals? You're finding new species of frogs and bats and snakes all the time actually in well-explored countries. They've had that new salamander in uh, Florida recently. And, I mean, how, how well-explored is Florida? I mean, it's a vast area, but there's, there's been a, an eye on Florida for a long time, a very scientific eye. And yet, new salamander, you know, it's about a foot and a half long or whatever the length is. It's not a tiny creature. Um, and there it is, right under their nose. They never saw it. So, um, I always think about things like that. The Billy Ape. It's a tall, yeah. huge ape. We didn't know about it until very recent times. So, I mean, talking about that kind of thing, then talking about the skeptics and everything else that, go, that goes into this genre, I think it would be probably a good deal going to the eDNA study um, mm-hmm. and your opinions on that. Uh, anyway, just to preface, you know, I think it's a fantastic science. But are we... Um, before your opinion, are we in a position these days where we uh, we look at things like the sonar study of the lock or, you know, several samples around the lock as being conclusive of the entirety of the body of water? Is that the position that we're in, really, as, as laymen? And, and what do you think the, the true scientific uh, overview of, of that particular study is? What did they really capture and, and what's left to find? Yeah, so... Environmental DNA is a, it's not a new subject, but it's becoming more important in tracking uh, animal, uh, animals and their, their presence, their populations, their survivability. And basically, they take up DNA, DNA fragments of animals from the waters which have been uh, discharged or shed or other things, and they'll, they take them to labs and they'll multiply them up. And then they'll sequence the DNA, and yeah. then they'll match those, match those sequences against known species. Uh, mm. Running, run, they're basically running big computer programs which are tracking, try to slot these Loch Ness segments into known segments. Of, so it's a bit like pattern matching, you know. Mm. So uh, can they? What is the best fit and match? So, I mean, back in 2012, when I I was writing on uh, the difficulty of finding a, a nasty carcass, and uh, I said, "Well, the next 
best thing is to go down there and do eDNA study. So I was suggesting that back in 2012. Mm. Uh, eventually, uh, Neil Gemmell, the, the professor on the study, he was recommended to do it by Darren Nace, who's a skeptic, but uh-huh. skeptics believe in science. So do yeah. I. So uh, the job was done back in June uh, a year or two ago, and basically, it's, it's pretty accurate. They, they find just about everything they could find in the lock. Uh, but some things they didn't find. They didn't find otters, for example. Mm. They didn't find any otter DNA. So the thing is, uh, nobody's saying it's perfect, but it's pretty. It's as good as you're going to get, I think. So they found the stuff that eels. They probably knew. Uh, they weren't going to find fat, they weren't going to find seals, for example, because they are the visitors. No. Uh, no. The DNA has to be continuously, continuously replenished uh, through shedding and defecation because uh, the DNA degrades after a number of weeks. So if a seal comes in and goes out again, uh, ten it. weeks before, yeah. ten weeks before Neil Gamble came, it wouldn't find anything. Uh, the other problem is if something is too localized, like otters, then if they're not sampling in the right area, I think they took 200 samples areas. Okay. Uh, otters, otters don't go into the middle of the lock, as far as I know. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. they just hide along the, the shoreline. So anything along the shoreline, uh, and certain locales, is not going to be found. So they didn't find otters, I think there's one or two other things they didn't find. Um, they found human DNA, of course, uh, mm. various bugs. I mean, I wouldn't say they found every waterfowl. Uh, so it's a good technique for finding and verifying what's there. Yeah, I don't think it's so good at telling us about proportions. I, would, could, I don't think it's so good at telling us about abundance of land for. Yeah, I don't think yeah. you can map it to a biomass. No, no. But if there's lots of deal DNA, yeah. So that which revives an old uh, view that uh, there's millions of deals in Loch Ness. Uh, and I've got a, a, I had an old paper clipping from the 50s, 60s rather, talking about millions of eel elvers, uh, glass eels being caught in Loch Ness for, to be sent to Eastern Europe for uh, raising the Neakin. So, yes. Uh, others have said, and Tindin to another said, there's millions of eels that could uh, provide uh, food for the a larger predator. So, at the end of the day, they didn't they didn't or DNA. Nobody knows what plesiosaurs or DNA looks like, but they can make a, a rough approximation to turtles uh, or other living creatures. Okay. They didn't find any reptile and there's a lot of unknown DNA as well. I mean, I think they said that a good proportion, 30 40 percent, they could not pattern much against anything. So, I mean, the, 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 could that be down to poor sampling or um, uh, uh, contaminated sampling, probably? Yeah, it's, it's down to finding that's been too small. Mm, that's what I thought. And a lot of people read into that to say they just couldn't identify it. But I think 
they couldn't run it, is what they were saying. But if the parts and the sequence of being is too small, yeah, and you're going to get ambiguity. You're going to get multiple multiple matches. Mm. You're going to get ambiguity. Exactly. The longer yeah. the sequence, the more of a unique match you're going to get. And what? No, I mean Neil Gamble at some point will publish a scientific paper. We'll be we'll get access to all this data. Yeah, he, yeah. He said it, he said that others are free to run the sequences against their own databases. Yeah, but obviously only a professional could do that. I mean, the, the yeah. cost is prohibitive. Um, yeah, so, yeah. so yep. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, he said that giant EO theory is not inconsistent with his findings. Mm. And the giant EO theory took off and people started chatting about it. And uh, the funny thing was, uh, a day or two before he went public with his findings, uh, there was a video... The river nest on this long eel like object. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Yeah. Flipping through the, the water. I mean, it, was, it wasn't more. It wasn't messy. or something? Yeah. <laughs> but it looks pretty big. Yeah. Eels can get pretty big, but we're never, we're never, no one's ever caught an eel more than about three feet long in Lost Nest. Yeah. Uh, but they found more eels and conger eels out in the sea, closer, closer to the long North Sea. But I know if, if someone had someone had fished out an eel six foot long and lost this, we, we, we would have known about it. Yeah, you know, and you wouldn't be fishing them out because they're voracious predators. You know, they wouldn't be those big yeah. oysters I mean, would only, be getting caught. I mean, the only the only we may may not catch them is if, you, if you, your line isn't set up for them because uh-huh. a six footer is. I mean, people are normally just if you're fishing for a salmon. Okay, uh, yeah. A, a yeah. one foot salmon, a one a foot, uh, a fairly large salmon, and your line should be able to catch a six foot eel. No one ever had. So, no. okay. if there's no six footers, I mean, you never catch a 20 footer. <laughs> no more. No. We, we'd, expect, we'd expect gradation of sizes. If yeah. Giant eel. yeah. But we don't. It's the morphology yeah. issue, isn't there? I mean, you talk about this a lot, I know. And if they are giant eels, well, what about the. The head and neck sightings and um, the bulbous body and the flippers and everything else, everybody yeah. else. There was something, something you talk about a, a bit in your book, and I've used it in so many um, interviews and referenced you in this to say, uh, you talk about the my argument sucks, or my theory sucks the least theory. Which yeah. is, you know, sure, you know, an eel couldn't um, uh, morphologically, you know, Exhibit those behaviours. This long-necked, bulbous-bodied, four-flippered um, beast seems to, but it beats the theory that you know, as some prehistoric survivors living in a cold loch in Scotland. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I like that because I say, well, yeah, actually, actually, the sceptical theory in that instance is much worse than the plausible reality that there could be some living prehistoric creatures somewhere. Yeah, it's down to, you know, use Occam's razor as kind of yeah, uh, a guide. Yeah. Occam's razor could, you, you could have a, you could have a genuine 40-footer on the lock, but Occam's razor can still exclude it from other explanations. I mean, the, 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 the Aldi Mackay site, and, and when I, the skeptics kind of view, well, my maybe subsidies because it's, 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 it may be stupid, but it's not incredible. Like, like a, uh, please, you thought, Phoebe. 
for example, yeah. the, the Aldi McKay said, and she saw two humps moving around. Uh-huh. Uh, so one sketch said, oh, she just saw two seals in a meeting ritual. Uh, so you say, okay, that sounds rational, logical. Yeah. So why why do we need to believe in monsters? I mean, why why can't we just accept that theory? So the tactic is, is to dumb down the explanation, come mm. in with something which sounds half half plausible and mm. everyone's happy. And but then the problem is you begin to pick away at it. You realise that March she saw it in March April, and that's not the meeting season for seals, for example. Mm. And uh, she said, since she watched the uh, area for half an hour, and seals would normally come back up after eight minutes because they're rear breathers. So uh, uh-huh. it wasn't. No one ever. No one recorded. I mean, no one saw seals in Loch Ness in 1953. We'd have known about them. I mean, seals get shot yeah. all the time in Loch Ness. And they're very inquisitive creatures, curiosity, they follow boats. I mean, if there were a seal in Loch Ness in 1953, we'd have known about it. Uh-huh. So I go back to the other theories, I mean, try to set the Loch Ness monster as like having just a few jigsaw puzzle pieces and you're mm-hmm. not quite sure how to fit them all together. It's yeah. like the blind men and the elephant, because they're <laughs> the one's touching the trunk and says it's a snake, the other's touching the tail, yeah. the other one's touching its, its leg, the trunk-like legs and saying, well, this is a tree and there. So it, uh, I like that. that. Yeah. No one ever sees the monsters entirely apart from these very rare land sightings. Mm. Yeah. When you see it in the water, you, you know, they see its back, you see its neck, yeah, the well, tail is really seen. It's like a jigsaw. When I'm talking about that, talking about the, the land sightings, you know, you've, you've written a few books on the Loch Ness one, so uh, two of which I've got. I've got The Water Horses of Loch Ness, and I've got When Monsters Come Ashore. Mm-hmm. So, um, what to you would be three, you know, most significant land sightings that you've heard of? Yeah. Well, Spicer is the most important mm-hmm. one. Yeah, we've already covered that. Yeah, Arthur Grant is the other one, which was basically mm-hmm. six, months, six months later. And he and was a veterinarian, is that right? Or he was a student? He was a vet. He was a vet, yeah. He was uh, a student actually in Edinburgh, not far from here. Uh, but he's done it. He should have known what he's looking at. And, uh, yeah. Well, he should have known what the alternatives were. Uh, the other, other ones were... Well, that's the next, what's the next one I'd say? I well, like Torquil McLeod in 1960. Uh-huh. Uh, when he was looking over to the from the north shore, he looked across about a mile away to uh, an area called the Horseshoe Scree, which is a, basically a scree. And there... Uh, he saw this. It's actually half on land, half of water, and he used his binocular reticulates to estimate it's about 50 feet long. And there, uh, you watch this neck go from side to side. They saw two front paddles. Couldn't see the rear. Eventually, it flopped on its side back into the water. Yeah, those, those are the three best ones. Yeah, but we only have one photograph of the. The monster room, and as at night came a flash, just like a roast chicken. And <laughs> uh, yeah, we really need a. But I think the monsters, I mean, they, don't, they only happen, they're so rare, landscaping. It's mm. more, more chance of winning the lottery than seeing that, even if you live in the lock. Yeah. 
because people try to explain away with deer, otters, mirages, yeah. and so on. Um, I've challenged all these theories. I mean, mirages around the loch, is that a common phenomenon? I, I've not, um, maybe on the water, but on land? Well, I mean, a day like today, you had mid-30s in London, centigrade. Six. Yeah, Very six. hot. Yeah. Yeah. Loch Ness would have been warm today as well. Uh, you need the tarmac to heat up. You need the tarmac, black tarmac. It re-radiates the heat, and it begins to disturb the air around it and you uh, the person the witness would have to be approaching uh, maybe possibly going down a dip or up a dip we're not sure the best conditions and the object uh, basically would be shimmered and possibly even made, made to look bigger but to be fair I mean mirages are not so great they can multiply out something by a factor of three or four yeah. We're only talking yeah. we're only talking about we're only talking about marginal effects. I mean they need quite extreme mirage conditions uh, to try and explain a lot of stuff that skeptics try to explain away. You know, like desert mirages or something like that. Mm. Yeah, where you have extreme extreme temperature variation variation uh, producing uh, mirages. So mirages has never been a, a major theory to explain much at all. Because they're so yeah. rare. Well, I mean, it's not a mirage, but perhaps what I've seen something on some of my travels to, to Israel, uh, down there in the Negev, just, I've, I've seen mm-hmm. uh, features that looked almost like objects or buildings or cities on the horizon, you know, and on approaching them, they've not been there. And I suppose you could sort of call that mirage, I guess, but yeah. the haze yeah. that came along with it was quite, there was a telltale effect to the way it looked. That kind of told you it wasn't something actual. I suppose in, in a country like ours, people could be fooled by a mirage more easily because it would be unexpected, perhaps. But a mirage that resembles a monster crossing but a road. Is, <laughs> and uh, I've, never, I've never seen a photograph of a mirage at this. No. I think I saw one mirage photograph, which was a general wide-angle shot of the entire walk. Certainly not anything that was zoomed in to the kind of sizes we're talking about. So no, I mean, certainly not. They're, they're so rare, they're not even, they've been photographed less than the monster. Yeah. It's <laughs> reaching, exactly. It's reaching, isn't it? Um, now, you know, looking through the, the blog, looking through the books, everything you've put together, um, you know, some people might not realise that you actually do research on the lock and around the lock as well. Then I believe you recently collected some. Um, some game cams that you had up there for a few months. How did yeah. that go? Did you did you have any luck, or have you not been through them yet? I haven't been through them yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, so game cameras. Uh, I took this side idea from finding Bigfoot. You know, the Bobo, these yeah. chums, they this strap a uh, camera to a tree and go away where they did other stuff. So I thought that's great because. Uh, most of the hunting traditionally is they're sitting down there on the shore with an yeah. camera, sitting there for an hour waiting for something to happen. Yeah, so the good thing about game cameras is they have a limited range. You know, they may have a, a cone of detection. We're talking about uh, it waits for motion detection or heat detection if it's nighttime. Mm-hmm. So if anything moves into its, uh, into its field of its range, then it will take a video clip or it will take a sequence of pictures. 
the good thing about that is uh, it's only going to photograph things that are close up. So we're not talking about a Loch Ness blob here. You know, something mm. that's photographed half a mile away. It's not going to take yes. photographs. It may coincidentally take a picture of something half a mile away, but uh, something moves in within its 60 foot radius, you'd be pretty sure you're going to get an unambiguous image. So, uh, but at the same time, that, that significantly reduces the odds of it photographs yeah. anything because the lock, the lock is uh, 26 square miles. Uh, we have one camera is, is covering only maybe 60 square feet. So, uh, okay. vanishingly small. So, but I have, I have, I put them along the lock. Uh, it's uh, basically a, a lifelong venture, this one. We'll talk about mm. the odds here. Yeah, so they, they start I mean, to be reflected. Yeah. No, no, sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I do the same thing with different, it's worth a shot, basically, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, it was a game, yeah. but you, it's basically down to the more cameras there, the more the, lo- the odds are lower. So, but the, the other problem is there, because you, you get a time factor as well, so you get a distance factor, 60 feet. Uh, mm. also, you also want them to be surveying the lock as long as possible, so that that increases the odds of something coming in front of it. So, but the problem is, uh, okay, the batteries are pretty good, uh, but some the problem is uh, it's motion trigger of motion. So sometimes the waves are crashing in. Uh, uh, bat- okay. It's more than half a science that the waves that even sunlight can trigger it and. Uh-huh. It's probably because of the heat. Yeah. So, uh, so, so the batteries can be still primed, but the, the SD card fills up, fills up. Okay. okay. So some of some of cameras have nine thousand images on them, <laughs> or a bunch of choppy, choppy uh, yeah, days of waves, and, and the weather's often inclement up there, isn't it? You know, it's very changeable. Yeah. And the the the. the, the, the they're used over the winter when the, the waters are choppier. So you've got to find this. You've got to try and read the, the camera enough to miss out the waves crashing below the shore. But uh-huh. if you put it too, if you put it too high, then you're you're moving the detection zone is yeah. you're moving out the cone of detection below you. So it's, it's more it's an art and a science. But some 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 cameras are pretty well positioned and the only trigger and stuff was passed. So yeah, I've I've looked at I actually looked through some of them recently and some of them picked up canoes and boats, so they're working well. But okay. they didn't see anything. So I've now got to go I've now got to go through the images of the other ones. There may be something on them but I'm not sure there's time. a lot of exactly <laughs> there's a lot of flicking forward, looking at waves and sunny days yeah. and rest of it. But, but I mean, ultimately, worthwhile. Um, I, I, I just think it's... Um, I've been up there a few times. You know, obviously, I have to come up from London. And uh, the first time I ever went there was actually 2012. So mm-hmm. I stayed... At, it was My wife allowed us to have a belated honeymoon in this uh, in the Loch Ness Lodge near Drumna Drochet. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was very nice. I mean... To be honest, we preferred the night in the Premier Inn in Inverness like before. They were just friendlier. Yeah. But still, the, the hotel was lovely. Great view, Loch Ness Lodge. And um, 
we went around the lock and you know the whole thing and to me it just seemed um even then it seemed that the possibility of genuine sightings was kind of crushed by the need for tourism in a way not that they were that the locals would fake them so to speak but that um the way that the loch moved it was very strange the way the water moved on top of it i understand there's a lot of weird currents there in the depth and the wind the way the wind hit it after the boats passed by the you know the bow wave would be there for about five minutes sometimes it seemed and uh it just seemed to me that this was um just a very difficult place what with tourism and the environment itself to to have a sighting now, I know there are other lochs attached to it, then Loch Lochy, Loch Oasis, Sector, Loch Gary as well, is that right? Um, you know, what about the chances of doing some research in those places and, um, and perhaps finding something there? There have been a few reports, is that right? The sightings are very rare. Loch Oasis is the next loch down yeah. along the Greek Lane. And you know, the lochs are just water filled trench from a geological fissure. Yeah. Then you have Loch Lochy, which is bigger than Loch Oise, but smaller than Loch Ness, and then you yeah. you feed out into the sea, uh, Loch Linny, Loch Heel. Yeah. Loch Gary, Loch Gary is uh, fed by a river. Oh, away. that's an offshoot for that. An offshoot. Yeah. It's not yeah. Yeah. It's not really. I've been to Loch Lochy. I've been to Loch Lochy. Uh, I've never spent much time there. The, the, main, the main other loch of interest to me is Loch Mora. Yeah. Which is... Yeah. Which is uh, has the second highest reputation for monsters in Scotland. Yeah, I've been there several times. I was I was first there in the 1980s. Uh, uh-huh. I remember reading it in that in that logbook I just mentioned to you. Uh, went over to Loch Mora. I was at Loch Mora just over a week ago. I took over oh, my wow. drone. I took my drone over to Loch Mora because the the waters are more mm. transparent. So I think. Uh, now, I've been to drone footage, I haven't seen anything unusual. Uh, but the problem with drones is uh, the battery life. Mm. Uh, one battery will last you 30 minutes. Uh, so you have to keep recharging them, which you can't do on site. You know, you need mm. But I'm thinking out of the way to extend life of these drones. Uh, but I think, because back in the early 80s, we had a chap called Sidney Wignall, who was mm. an explorer. He went over to Loch Mora with a kind of microlight aircraft and uh, he took his cameraman with him and some other guys and they said that over at the quiet end of Loch they saw some creatures uh, just below the water level uh, which looked very, to quote another person, please just saw light. Uh-huh. And, and it actually made the news back in the 80s uh, but the films have disappeared. In fact, if we could find these films, it would probably be the best evidence for late cryptids ever, in my opinion. It just, this is, uh, sorry to, to, to jump on you there, but this is this is a, another strange phenomenon of all the, the different locks, and there's so much footage out there that just kind of disappears. Um, and do you think that's yeah, because yeah. in days past, you know, maybe the news featured your footage for a little while and then you had it on the VHS tape or Super 8 back in the day or whatever it was, and you know, it, it, people lost interest and nobody was around to collate them or buy them, and they, you know, they rotted in your in the attic in a box or just disappeared from view. I mean, 
what do you think is the reason that all of this amazing footage just seems to fall by the wayside? No, I'm sure some of it's still lying in attic somewhere. Now, once they've been publicised and had a day, they just go off in the stories. We need yeah. today, more modern footage today is less likely to be lost because of the internet. Yes. Mobile yeah. But we've had several films taken in the 1930s. Uh, Taylor, two films by a guy called Malcolm. We only have one of them is now available. The other two have disappeared. Uh, nothing yeah. in the 40s. There's no films taken in the 50s. The 60s, we have loads of stuff. Tim Dinsdale, we still have that film. We have the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, who took a lot of film, film footage as well. Mm. As far as we, there's only one of their films that we are, can view on the internet, and that's Dick Wiener's 1967 footage. Oh, his, the later, it was the, he thinks that they're water birds, is that right? Yeah. But you can't see water birds. birds. Uh, are they, do you believe that they're water birds? I've actually never formed an opinion on that picture. I mean, I mm. think I've seen the monster, but, uh, I'm not, I'm going to... I mean, the wake is quite small, and I remember um, one of the things that stood out to me uh, the first time I was up there was uh, when it was calm, the lock, actually with the ducks and the different types of water birds there, each one of them left quite a considerable wake. You know, the water seemed, in its calm state anyway, to be easy. It, the disturbance was very notable. Um, and I yeah. wondered from my hotel window looking, well, actually, yeah, you know, I, I guess somebody who's a bit excitable could, could mistake it for something else. But something like him, it seems strange to me that he would have been convinced of that then and later came to the conclusion that it was water birds. Well, back, back when he took it, he was a believer, and now he hasn't to debunked debunk himself. So, uh, that's it. Uh, the other Loch Ness investigation bureau for they are actually in his possession just now. Oh, really? So, <clears throat> they're just in these rusty cans of 35mm film. And he's not planning to... Is he um, digitising them, or...? Some, some have been digitised, but I'm yeah. not sure where he's at. Uh, six years ago, I asked him about this, and it was a okay. long project. I still have nothing, and I was at the Loch Ness exhibition a week or two yeah. ago, which from Bayview Chain. They do not show me anything. So, and the problem is, if you don't believe there's a monster in these footages, then you're less motivated to do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard that there was something they had of some sort of sighting on the, uh, one of the far shores, a mile away, some creature that was supposed to be sighted and, and in footage that they were, they were holding. But yeah, you hear about things like this all the time. You know, it it is, uh, land, land, land Satan. That's yeah. a land, that was a land Satan. Uh, what sighting is that? Uh, what alleged land sighting is that? Well, it's taken in 1963, I think, that film. And yeah. Taken, exactly taken it two miles away. Uh-huh. The, very, the, the very limit of the telephoto lenses, and uh, uh, I never see that. I like to see it, but yeah, I mean, you I think that know. would be interesting? And uh, I'm sorry to jump on you again, but the other thing when I, I always joke about it sometimes when I feel frustrated is the whole area to me sometimes seems like a sort of um, an ailing cryptozoological Coney Island. You know, it's had its day. There's still lots of people coming, but some of the 
there's not a lot of money going into the the monster side of things. And you'd think it would be of interest to people, or it'd be saleable. You know, people visiting would want to see that film, and it it could be a financial benefit to the person that that owns it. But nobody seems to be acting, and I yeah, I never quite knew why. Or and we talk about the Nessie on the net cam, you know, the Owen Fagan and these guys are constantly reporting these blips and blobs. But how about you know, is it Miko's camera? I don't know who it is. But how about you move it a little closer? (laughs) <laughs> because obviously yeah. you're getting a lot of hits. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think once lockdown is over, there'll be something's going to happen. I think we'll get uh, something. <coughs> I think if we could put a, phone, a camera on the Clansman Hotel or something like that, yeah. <coughs> be good, a good publicity for the Clansman Hotel. There's plenty of the Clansman Hotel is only a couple hundred meters, hundred meters from shore. So yeah. The, the camera company uses must be over half a mile away. Yeah, so, yeah, so it must. We, we immediately get ten times closer. So uh, I've, I've asked the story of Scotland if they put one in the castle, but security, you know. But Clansman okay. Hotel, Clansman Hotel is a great place to come. I think that so is uh, next to the Loch Ness Lodge. That's in Drumna Drocket as well, right? Loch Ness Lodges are beside Clansman. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, the houses uh, self catering. That's right. That's right. Now, um, yeah, I love the area. I love Scotland. I was I was there um, late last year actually in uh, Galloway Forest Park for a different thing, a Bigfoot type thing, and uh, yeah. just in the country, uh, you know. And somebody who comes from Wales, you know, I recognise it as a country. It's just a, a beautiful, pristine place to go. And, and visit, but especially the loch. Now, there's 31,466 lochs and lochins, you know, allegedly in that whole area that is Scotland. Um, and we're just talking about um, the itinerant Nessies in the lochs um, that re- reside around Loch Ness and Loch Morar, or um, are there credible reports in other lochs of species? Loch Mora is yeah. less credible. Yeah. In fact, some, some say it's more credible. Mm. Uh, Adrian Sainz says if, it, if there's a monster anywhere, it's in Loch Mora. Yeah. It's been. Uh, the, other, <coughs> the other ones, uh, I mean, Loch Loch, there was a site, the last site in the Oik Island in 2012. Uh, I haven't been yeah. recently from Loch Loch. Uh, so, if we're going to see it about a loch, we need to hear more reports. Yeah. Loch Mora is so remote and uninhabited, I suppose you'd be surprised if anyone reports anything. But uh, the other lochs, uh, hmm, well, I've had lochs. Have... There's not much happening in those lochs. There's some stuff in the 1930s, Loch Neven, Loch Treg, Loch yeah. White and that. Uh, the sea lochs, like Loch Hill, Loch Linney, uh, yeah. can argue they're sea serpents. Uh, all the other locks are so small. Uh, yeah. Loch Dewey has had some stories, but again, that's a sea lock. Uh, all the other locks tend to just be water horse traditions rather than uh-huh. modern. Okay. Even, even the there's a little lock up near Loch Ness called Loch Lach, Loch Latch, uh, which has had most of the stories from the 1830s. That lock's only a puddle to be yeah. in Loch Ness. Yeah, yeah. 
and even Loch Ness, you know, is not the um, <clears throat> not the biggest place in the world. I mean, I, I was visiting uh, Lake Champlain uh, back yeah. in 2018, and you know, when I went to Loch Ness the first time, I thought it was huge, it was gigantic. But you know, a lake that's 14 miles across and 121 miles long, it's like <laughs> that's the, almost the distance big... between here and Wales in Cardiff, where I come from. So it's yeah, you know, hard to uh, hard to survey as well. It's hard to survey, and it's not even the, the biggest one they have. Now I know, you know, it's not really about size; it's about um, availability. You mentioned that the mass of eels that was detected in the the eDNA study, and other people mm-hmm. have spoken about before clearly. And there's also, you know, salmon runs throughout the year, or you know, many times in the year in, in Loch Ness as well. I do believe there's enough food there, but do you believe that this creature is? Is coming in and out of the lock? Is it going to the sea? I know the journey to the sea would be quite you know, fraught with um, obstacles, but it, I, I do believe it is a possibility. What are your thoughts? Yeah, on that? yeah, yeah. I mean, we have I collated cl- eight eight sightings of strange creatures in the River Ness, uh-huh. which connect connects lock to the sea. Yeah. <coughs> we now have sightings in the late six, uh, mid six. Of a long necked up creature heading out to the sea in the river. Wow. This, 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 the interesting thing though with that side was it happened during heavy rain. Okay? Uh-huh. So there's a theory yeah. that when you have a lot of water, rain, flooding in rivers that raising re- re- the level of the loch and the river, they're basically in speed. Uh, uh-huh. there's, there's, there's a heightened probability a creature can more likely come in than come out. Uh-huh. Uh, not, I'm not sure how easy it is, how often they can leave the lock, but there's the idea that a smaller creature gets into the lock more than once and uh, stays there, can't get back out. Uh-huh. Seals, seals, seals generally do not get back out of the lock. Okay, they find their way in, they don't get stay, out again. They stay there for months, they start eating the salmon, and the water bearers have to dispatch them. Oh gosh. Because there's enough food for them to live there. So, uh, so I think see, one, I, I like the itinerant monster I think occasionally over decades and centuries something comes in and gets gets caught trapped uh-huh. and it just stays there okay uh, what so, I mean I, well I suppose you know, with the UK having actually lots of sea serpent stories around the different coasts especially in Scotland it would make sense that an animal seeking a new way or seeking a new food source would take advantage of a, a flooded um, situation, you know, of high tides, so to speak, high rivers. We see that happening in other countries, you know, where known um, aquatic animals like crocodiles, for instance, in Australia, when they're flooding, they, they move into new territory. They check it out, don't they? they um, yeah, we, we, yeah. Now, we talk about two conditions which probably... Um, Optimal for a large creature coming in or semi large gro- juvenile. And you got salmon, a run of adult salmon, and mm. steep high water levels floods. Yeah. I'm not seeing every time that happens, you have a monster coming in, but yeah, it's happened in the centuries past. I don't know how long these things live, but whether yeah. they actually breed the breed in the loch, I don't, I don't know. Okay. So, okay. So these reports over time really could be the odd creature that gets stuck there and 
So I have to either wait until the, the this flooding reoccurs or or yeah, stay. Well, I don't think any chance they can get out. I mean, I don't think they're intelligent enough to figure that out. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, most of them think, well, there's a lot of rain. This is my chance to get back to the sea. So oh, you know, but I suppose, you know, aquatic animals, would, they would take advantage of the situation that that's there, I guess. Or maybe not. Yeah, maybe, maybe they, they wouldn't go that way. I don't know what their, their senses really would, would direct them to do if they have a, a pool, as it were, as some animals have. Um, yeah, navigation sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. So many animals have it that are much smaller. And just before we go, and I've really, really enjoyed it, I probably mm-hmm. asked a hundred more questions. Um, just, um, just talk about your books and so I want people I've got some of these books and I really love them I want other people to, to to find these books and now I've got The Water Horses of Loch Ness and I've got When Monsters Come Ashore but there are, there are others as well tell us about the, the other titles well, I got The Horses of Loch Ness from my first book in 2011 I think which basically covers the folklore the water horses the kelpies general folklore of aquatic monsters in Scotland that actually parallels the increase in sightings of monsters in the 18th and 19th centuries. So it's a uh-huh. parallel story of legends, folklore, plus real sightings, right. Georgian times, Victorian times, Edwardian times, and so on. Second book, Monsters from Ashore, and this is actually an anthology of articles, plus a few new ones, on land sightings. So land sightings is a, I think my most popular book, actually. Uh, mm. People love, for some reason, people love land sightings because uh, it's so weird and strange and kind of close encounters of the third kind mm. of kind of stuff. Uh, well, the last book was Photographs Like This Monster, uh, which covers all the famous photographs, some of which we've talked about today, the stuff of photographs. Uh, so it didn't cover films, it's just still images. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't covered all the, all the photographs, it goes away up to the present day. And it includes the fakers, so that's why it's subtitled The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah, the good I like ones, <laughs> the, good one, the good ones, the Clint Eastwoods, which, are, uh, which I believe yeah. are genuine. Then you have the bad ones, which are just basically misidentified. I'm looking at the, the Muppet Nessie right now in the cover. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that comes under ugly. Ugly, yeah. Dog Shields. So good, bad. Yeah. I also have a small small monograph book called Dragons West of Loch Ness. Yeah, now that looks very interesting, but it's it's only Kindle, is that right? Yeah. The, the other books are paper because I wanted all the online digital stuff to be put into paper form. Yeah. Uh, for, for posterity. If the, if, the, if the website ever disappears, you still get the books. That's the whole idea. Yeah, no, fantastic. And um, just just for everybody uh, out there as well, I would say yeah, go to lucknessmystery.blogspot.com. It's a great source of everything, Nessie, that you could possibly want to know about. And I love the the tagline as well, reclaiming the Loch Ness monster from the current tide of debunking and skepticism. Sure. If you believe it's something strange in Loch Ness, read on, which is, you know, that um, I was sold. That, that was... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even look at the the the, uh, the price tag. I I read on from there. Yeah. Roland, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me uh, again. And um, 
yeah, I just can't wait to see what the future holds. And I'm holding, I'm holding out for some really great um, newsworthy snaps on your game cam. That's uh, that's what I'll be thinking about later tonight. Thanks for coming yeah. on. Thank you, thank you, Andy. Okay, bye. Yeah, we're done.